The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. Calls are pre-screened and the show was pre-recorded earlier this week. Rick is with Edelman Financial Engines, a part of Financial Engines Advisors, LLC, and the investment advisor that furnishes this program. Barron's ranks financial advisory firms based on assets managed, team size, experience, and regulatory record. Firms self-nominate. Investment returns and experience are not considered. Advisors in the Hall of Fame have been in the top 100 for 10 plus years. Future performance is not guaranteed. This is the Rick Edelman Show. Barron's ranks Edelman Financial Engines the number one independent investment advisor in the country. And Rick is in the Barron's Financial Advisor Hall of Fame. Now, here's Rick Edelman. And a very happy weekend to you. Welcome to the Rick Edelman Show. So glad you're with me this weekend. And boy, I do have reason to be happy. Barron's just came out with their annual ranking of the nation's top independent financial advisors. And once again, Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked the number one firm in the nation. The Barron's ranking is based on assets under management, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. It is a real honor to once again be ranked by Barron's. They've been doing this for six years And we are very thrilled to be the number one ranked firm in the country. The thing that we find really interesting is that Barron's has updated the criteria for making its analysis on an annual basis. They now have staff diversity and succession planning on their list of criteria. These are both really terrific. Staff diversity doesn't need any explanation. But the succession planning, you might not fully understand what that is or why it matters. Here's what it comes down to. You have a financial advisor. Got a simple question for you. What happens to you if your advisor quits, retires, dies, goes on vacation? What happens to you? The SEC strongly encourages firms to have a succession plan in place, but industry surveys routinely show that a large number of financial advisors haven't done this. They have no succession plan. Many advisors work independently. They're, uh, you know, a mom and pop shop, so to speak. They have a practice all by themselves or maybe with one other partner or colleague in the firm. What happens to you if your planner isn't available? What happens to you if your planner isn't available for the rest of your life? because they're suddenly hospitalized or they retire or suddenly become disabled or what have you. The importance of succession is vital. You need to know that if there's a need for you to reach your advisor, there's somebody there for you to call, somebody there to receive your email, somebody who will respond to your needs at the very moment you need it. Because with, you know, your dumb luck, the market's going to crash while your advisor's on vacation in a remote island and not able to respond to your need. So succession planning really matters. So while you're busy working with your advisor on your succession plan, meaning your retirement, your estate plan, talk with your advisor about theirs. One of the things we pride ourselves on here at Edelman Financial Engines is the issue of succession and the value that we think we deliver to our clients, having 340 or so financial advisors all around the country, Well, that gives a whole lot of confidence to us, and I think, therefore, to our clients, that if something happens to Harvey, 
Jane is readily available to step right in. And because we operate as a team in our practice, the investment management strategy, the financial planning philosophies are uniform. Each of our advisors knows exactly how the money is being managed for our clients. So we understand the basis for it. We know the investments very well. The portfolio is extremely in-depth. And we understand the financial planning strategies that we're using for mortgages and homeownership, college planning, retirement planning, estate planning, and so on to provide a seamless transition for our client in the inevitability that a planner becomes unavailable. It has been our sad experience over the last 36 years that we've had a few of our financial planners pass away. We've had several retire. We've had a number simply depart. And, well, that has been an ability for us to demonstrate to the clients of all of those advisors that we're able to continue taking care of them seamlessly without any disruption. You need to know that you have that ability with your planner too. And it's an important criteria, so much so that it's now one of the criteria in the Barron's ranking of the nation's top financial advisors. One of the other reasons I think that we are highly regarded in the financial services industry is because of our forward-looking perspective. We spend a lot of time not merely evaluating what's going on, but trying to anticipate what's going to be going on in the future. We want to position your money so that it is designed for success in the future. Investing is not about the present. It's certainly not about the past. Unfortunately, so many people persist in investing based on past performance. We instead tend to look toward the future. And there's no question that one of the biggest conversations regarding the future of money is digital assets, Bitcoin, and the entire ecosystem surrounding it. A new study just was released this past week from Fidelity, their digital assets division, and they discovered that nearly 8 in 10 investors now believe that digital assets have a place in a portfolio. 9 in 10 find digital assets appealing. And the most appealing attribute? Well, as you would imagine, the high potential upside. And more than half of the institutional investors surveyed by Fidelity say that they are already invested in digital assets. Overall, 33% of U.S. investors own Bitcoin or some other digital asset. It's even bigger penetration overseas. In Europe, more than half of investors report owning digital assets, 71% of Asian investors. But here's what's interesting. Only 3% of pension funds, only 13% of endowments currently own digital assets, suggesting that there's a lot of room to grow. But in the face of all this, while we're apparently seeing widespread adoption and an increase in favorable views about this, you have to pay attention to what Gary Gensler said this week in a conference hosted by the Washington Post. Gensler is the chair of the SEC, the nation's top cop in the securities marketplace. And here is what he said about crypto. Quote, I don't think there's long-term viability for five or 6,000 private forms of money. That is an important statement. It is a clear message from the nation's top regulator that the ability for all of these coins to persist is not going to be tolerated. 
And we have to pay attention to this because although Bitcoin was the first digital asset, it was invented back in 2009, there are now over 11,000 different digital coins and tokens that exist. The overwhelming majority of them have no legitimate use. They are simply a speculation. One of the most egregious examples, of course, is Dogecoin, which some refer to as Dogecoin, spelled D-O-G-E, coin. And this was designed as a sheer joke. It was meant as satire on the whole Bitcoin conversation. It wasn't intended to be anything legitimate, but for some strange reason, investors have been buying Dogecoin to such a huge degree that many people have become millionaires over it. Others think it's nothing but a pump-and-dump scheme and is essentially doomed to ultimate failure. That is Gary Gensler's point. Five or 6,000 private forms of money? That is simply something that is not sustainable. So as you continue your education about Bitcoin, blockchain, and digital assets, education and information we bring you here on this show, you need to keep in mind that there are digital assets and then there are digital assets. Same thing in the stock market, isn't it? There are some stocks that are very much worthy of you buying, representing companies that are solid, stable, permanent, clearly generating profits for investors. And then there are some fly-by-night startups that are penny stocks, that are over-the-counter traded, that are simply there for promoters to make a quick buck. You need to be able to differentiate which kinds of stocks you want to own versus those you want to stay away from. And the same thing is true with digital assets. Before you invest, before you follow the hot tip of somebody in a chat room who you've never heard of, make sure you're talking with a financial advisor for guidance. Should you be investing? And if so, how and to what degree? That's what a good financial advisor can tell you. And not just about Bitcoin and digital assets, but about every asset class, stocks, bonds, government securities, real estate, oil and gas, natural resources, foreign securities, you name it, the key context of a diversified portfolio. And if you don't know where to find such a financial advisor who can assist you with your overall investment strategy and financial planning, well, you might want to turn to the firm that is ranked the number one independent financial advisor in the country by Barron's, Edelman Financial Engines. Reach us at 888-PLAN-RICK. Or visit online at rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com. Named by Talkers Magazine as one of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in the country, this is The Rick Edelman Show. Back to the Rick Edelman Show. Well, don't you hate it when I'm right? Last week on the program, I warned you that volatility was going to rear its ugly head. And sure enough, on Monday, well, we saw what happened. The stock market fell dramatically. The stock market fell almost 2%. The Hong Kong index, 
fell over 3%. Europe was down 2%. This was the worst day for U.S. stocks since May. What triggered this? Evergrande. You've never even heard of that company, have you? They're a real estate developer in China, and the stock fell 10% on Monday. Why would the fall of a stock in China have a repercussion on a global basis? Well, for one thing, it shows how connected our economy is on a global basis. The old joke that if China sneezes, the U.S. catches a cold, that the butterfly's wings overseas create a hurricane here. Well, that is increasingly the case. So one single company has a bad day and it causes repercussions on a global scale. So what's the deal with Evergrande? Why did they fall 10% in value and frankly why does anybody care? Well, they're a real estate developer, but they're not just any real estate developer. They are perhaps the biggest real estate developer in China and they owe massive amounts of money. Nearly a third of a trillion dollars is the size of their debt. And according to the Financial Times this week, the company was financing that debt by selling bonds and other assets, other investment products to retail investors in China. They sold over 6 billion dollars worth of investments to 80,000 investors. And what did they do with that money? They didn't use all of it to build their business. They didn't even use all of it to pay interest on their loans. What they did with a lot of that money, according to the Financial Times, they gave the money to other investors. That sounds like a Ponzi scheme to me. Evergrande is now down 88% so far this year. And considering the incredible importance of real estate development in China, Just think about all the construction. Just think about all the materials that the real estate industry in China uses. The supply and demand issue associated with lumber and all the other materials that go into building homes and other complexes in the massive new cities that China is creating. Well, if there's going to be a collapse of this real estate developer, that could portend a slowdown in the real estate sector in the entire country, with massive implications for all the companies that supply materials to the real estate industry in China. And this is why everybody decided, oh my goodness, if this real estate developer is collapsing, this is bad news for everybody else, everywhere else. And so the stock market fell about two percent on Monday. But by Tuesday, everybody said, "Never mind, no big deal. That was yesterday. We're not going to worry about it anymore." And all of a sudden, Evergreen seemed to be no big deal. And then you saw how the market has performed the entire rest of the week. In other words, it is what I told you last weekend—a return to volatility. We need to recognize that the stock market is typically volatile. Prices move up and down on a regular basis. We've enjoyed over the past year a pretty calm environment, not much volatility at all. But I don't want you to be lulled into a false sense of confidence into thinking that low volatility is normal. It's not. What we've experienced this week—that's normal, or at least a little more normal than what we've had、uh, in the past several months. So, recognize it, understand it. 
accept it. Don't get scared by it. And if you are feeling fearful, talk with your financial advisor about it, who can give you the guidance you need as to what you should do about it. The key that you want to avoid is reacting emotionally simply due to a daily headline. Now, having said all that, we do have to ask ourselves the question, what is the likelihood that the stock market's going to continue to do well? What are the threats that are out there that could cause the stock market to fall in value? Well, if the stock market were to fall in value, it would be because corporate profits are falling in value or investors are expecting corporate profits to fall. What are one of the big reasons that might happen? Climate change. It's something we simply have to acknowledge could affect the financial markets. The European Central Bank is creating a climate change action plan. The Bank of England warns of financial risks from climate change. The Commodity Futures Trading Commission published a 200-page report. The first sentence, quote, Climate change poses a major risk to the stability of the U.S. financial system. There are three ways climate change could affect the economy. Number one are transition risks. You know, we've got everybody getting all excited about electric cars. Well, that means we're transitioning from the internal combustion engine to electric vehicles. Well, companies that are polluters, companies that are making products that pollute, well, they're going to go out of business as other companies emerge that are more green in their operations. This transition risk could spell trouble for companies that are, at the moment, very well established, but which can't survive in a new green economy. So transition risk is one impact, potentially, on the economy. Another one are rising temperatures. The Financial Stability Board says economic losses from natural disasters back in the 1980s was $200 billion. Now, $1.6 trillion. This is because of the dramatic increase that we're experiencing in natural disasters, all as a result of rising temperatures. Those losses harm the economy. And related to that, the third way that climate change can affect the financial system, swings in asset prices. The Network for Greening the Financial System says financial losses comprise anywhere from 2% to 25% of the world's GDP. One study says there's $18 trillion worth of stocks around the world, $38 trillion worth of bonds and other debt, all linked to climate risks. Remember collateralized debt obligations, CDOs? Back in 2008, those CDOs were the cause of the downfall of the economic system during the credit crisis. Well, those CDOs comprised only $1 trillion worth of assets. Climate risk controls $56 trillion worth of assets. And this is why you're seeing more and more conversation from more and more governments around the world about coming to terms with the climate issues, because it's not only an environmental issue, it's not only a public health issue, it's a financial issue as well. So we need to pay attention to this and encourage adoption so that it is minimizing the disruption to our economy, to our lives, while also moving forward with protecting the planet. 
This is just an illustration of the kinds of issues that we are facing on a regular basis. You need to have your pulse on this. You need to make sure you're working with a financial advisor who has their pulse on this. And if you're not sure you are, if you're not sure your advisor is, give us a call here at Edelman Financial Engines. We're happy to help. 888-PLAN-RICK. You can visit us online at rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com. And coming up on the program, I'm going to be talking with you a little bit more about weather-related natural disasters and the impact on your homeowner's insurance. Every week, I like to bring you some of the latest innovations in the field of exponential technologies. There is a lot of movement in the world of electric vehicles. We're all looking forward to driving them. A lot of folks already are. One of the problems with them is that they're generally really expensive. Um, They cost $80,000 or more. There are some that are much less expensive, and they're getting cheaper yet. Aptera Motors is now taking orders for a solar-powered, three-wheeled electric vehicle, $25,000. Squad Mobility is taking orders, too, a tiny two-seater. It's made for city driving. It goes up to 12 miles on a single charge, so don't go far from home. And it only travels up to 28 miles an hour. So when they say city driving, they really mean it. This car is so small, four of them can fit into a single parking space. And then there's California. Candy America has a model K27. It only costs $8,000 after subsidies. But China beats them all. It's introducing a new miniature electric vehicle for $4,200. You're listening to The Truth About Money. I'm Rick Edelman, 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com. Author of the number one bestseller, Rescue Your Money, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Back to the Rick Edelman Show. We've been talking about climate change and how governments around the world are increasingly considering this a financial risk to the globe, not merely an environmental one. Let me give you a little uh, application of this in terms of today, here, now on your pocketbook. We have seen, obviously, an increase in wildfires, hurricanes, hail, mudslides, tornadoes, and floods. This is not just here in the U.S., but all around the world. But here in the U.S., in your local neighborhood, it has now been estimated that so far this year, one out of three Americans have experienced a natural disaster. This is just really incredible. One of the causes of this extreme weather is climate change. Billions of dollars in property damage more than ever, and it's likely to continue. What does it mean for the here and now? Well, it means that some insurance companies are raising their prices. Other insurance companies are refusing to renew the policies. So you might have trouble buying insurance on a brand new home you're looking to buy. You might have trouble renewing your existing policy on a home you already own. Other insurance companies are requiring the homeowners to make major improvements to their houses. To improve the roof, for example, so it won't blow off in a tornado, or to 
add a certain type of insulation to reduce fire risk. Consider this, a $1 million house in South Florida that was not built to current codes. You know, the house is 10, 20, 30 years old. That house pays $40,000 a year for homeowner's insurance. Insurance that would cost three grand somewhere else in the country. And if you do try to get your house up to code to cut your insurance from 40 grand a year to three grand a year, you could spend $100,000 on home improvements to get your house up to code. This is an illustration of the impact of climate change right now. So make sure as you are thinking about buying a house, because we know the housing market is hot, lots of folks are looking to move, relocate, buy second homes or what have you. In addition to looking at the neighborhood and evaluating the builder and the property and so on, you must also talk in addition to your real estate agent, in addition to your mortgage broker, in addition to the title settlement attorney, and in addition to the home inspector, you must now also talk to your insurance agent. You need to verify, can you buy insurance on that property? And what will that insurance cost? These aren't questions you had to ask yourselves in the past, but it's an illustration of how things are changing because of climate change. Something else that's changing, as you well know, is inflation. Inflation is up about 6% this year. And that number is kind of hard to digest. Sometimes you notice it and you see it in the goods and services that you're buying. But in other ways, other cases, it's kind of hard to really notice or observe. And in fact, a lot of people are insulated from it because they're not making very many purchases. Your kids, for example, probably don't recognize the impact of inflation because the kids aren't spending much money on very much stuff. Parents are doing it for them. College students are in an insulated environment as well. Their housing is paid for. They're on a food plan, and therefore those costs are all locked in for the academic year. And they may not be terribly cognizant of the impact of inflation. But there's one area where college students are getting a real education about the impact of inflation. Beer. Yes, beer prices are up 70% from last year. You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious. The reason beer prices are up so high, there's a shortage in aluminum. And therefore, the cost of producing the cans that the beer gets put into have skyrocketed. And college students, yeah, they're feeling the pain. And I assume that they're drinking their misery away. What do you do if you're a college student and beer is 70% more expensive than it was a year ago? Well, you pay for the beer with your credit card, and you simply go into credit card debt. In fact, since COVID began, 45% of Americans have added to their credit card debt. More than half the country now carries a balance from month to month. And 18% of American households owe $20,000 or more to credit cards. 31% of Americans have missed at least one payment this year. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're immediately, as I give you that statistic, trying to contemplate why. Why would people be missing payments with such an incredible amount of of frequency? One out of three people with a credit card have missed a credit card payment? Clearly, it's because these people are under severe economic financial pressure. 
they may have lost their job. They may have medical bills that are, that are massive and they can't afford to pay them. They may have an unexpected car repair and they just don't have the hundreds of dollars that needed to pay the bill. No. The most common reason, according to a recent survey, of why people have missed a credit card payment, 37% said this was the reason they simply forgot. Well, you say we try that one again, huh? <laughs> you know, you can't fix stupid. I mean, if you're going to be an adult, you need to act like an adult. And if you're going to borrow money from someone, you need to recognize you have an obligation to repay that debt. The sooner you repay it, the lower the debt is. And if you're going to act with such immaturity and cavalier attitude that you simply forgot to pay the bill, well, you're not only paying interest, you're also paying late fees and penalties associated with it. You're making the whole situation worse. Hey, I got news for you. Visa and MasterCard love it when you fail to make a payment because they get to charge you even more money. If you need someone to assist you with the management of your personal finances so that you can move into a direction that is positive for your lifestyle, that is beneficial for your financial future, you need to talk with a financial advisor for assistance with this. I mean, there are a lot of reasons people go into debt. They got to pay for food. They've got to pay for the utilities. There's an unexpected emergency. They have to struggle with their rent or mortgage. I mean, all of those are understandable. But here's the problem. 23% say that the reason that they're in credit card debt is that they simply spend too much on non-essentials. In other words, you're buying food that isn't really food. It's just snacks. You're going to bars and spending 50 75 100 bucks at a clip. You're engaging in wasteful spending on items you don't really need, you don't really want, you're never really going to use, and you're never going to miss them if you didn't ever have them. We need to recognize that you need to spend less than you earn. It's as simple as that. If you'll follow that one piece of advice of everything that I've ever said over the 30 years I've been doing this radio broadcast, that one piece of advice will make you wealthy. Spend less than you earn. So many people are living a lifestyle they simply can't afford, and we need to break that cycle. Now, in the face of it, people are taking the attitude, I don't want to break the cycle. I instead want the government to give me money. Well, we already have a huge number of Americans receiving money from the government, and now 72% in a recent survey say they support UBI, Universal Basic Income. 72% of Americans polled say they want the federal government to send them a check on a monthly basis, just because. Who politically is supporting this? 88% of Democrats support universal basic income. 72% of independents support this. And even a majority of Republicans, 53% of Republicans, support universal basic income. And this will not surprise you at all. According to the survey, they not only asked what's your political affiliation, they also asked how much money do you earn? They also asked what is your age? And you guessed it, the less you earn, the more you want universal basic income. I don't make a lot of money, so I want the government to give me some. And the younger you are, the more you support universal basic income. 
because working is really hard and I don't want to have to work this hard for the rest of my life, so just give me money. Well, think about this. The vast majority of Americans don't earn very much money. The average household income in this country is less than $45,000 a year. And the vast majority of the country is younger rather than older. So if most people in this country don't earn very much and are young, and they are the ones most supportive of universal basic income, it is therefore inevitable that universal basic income will become the law of the land. I don't know when. I don't know what that income will be. I don't know what the criteria will be. We're going to have to wait and see. I'm Rick Edelman. Stay with us for more here on The Rick Edelman Show. 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com. And if you've got questions you want to ask me, you can record them on your cell phone and send me the audio file to askrick at rickedelman.com. I'll answer on the air. doesn't come with instructions more of your questions coming up on the rick edelman show let's take a phone call here on the rick edelman show off to dublin no not that dublin the one in ohio Michael's with us on the air. How you doing, Michael? Good. I have a quick question. Sure. So I have stocks that I invested in 20 years ago with, with drips, and I want to leave them uh, to my children upon transfer upon death. Is that possible? Sure, Michael. You can do that. Just go to the registrar for the stocks and tell them you want to change the registration to a TOD. Simple as that. Thank you. Yeah, Michael, sometimes the answers are pretty simple. So I'm really glad we were able to handle that for you. Thanks so much for calling. That was Michael in Dublin, Ohio, here on The Rick Edelman Show. We're going to stay on the phones and head over to La Mirada, California. Mark is with us. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing super good, but it'll get better. <laughs> well, I can only hope. <laughs> good for you. How can I help you today? Okay. So most of my assets are in protected accounts. In other words, I don't pay taxes on them at this time. However, if I pull money out of them, I will have to pay taxes on that, and it will hit the top of my tax base. So I'm going to be paying the maximum amount of tax on it. So my question is, am I better off refining the house and getting the money and spreading those payments out over a period of time? Because I'm thinking I'm going to have to add like 25, 30% on to whatever I pull just to cover the taxes. In other words, I'm assuming that you need a certain amount of cash. What are you doing, a home remodeling or buying a car or what? Adding a bathroom to the house. Okay. And how much is that going to cost? I'm looking somewhere between twenty and 25000 Okay. So your, your analysis is exactly correct. Uh, if you withdraw $25,000 from your IRA, you're going to pay taxes on that IRA, which is going to cost you, let's call it a third or $8,000 between state and local taxes. And that means you don't have $25,000. you have given 8000 to the IRS, so you only have 17000 left. Well, that's not enough to pay for the improvements on the bathroom. 
So in order to net $25,000, you're going to have to withdraw about $35,000. So you pay the 30% in taxes on that, and that will allow you to net the $25,000 you need. In other words, you would end up spending $35,000 for a $25,000 bathroom renovation. That's a bad deal, as you've acknowledged. Therefore, I believe you're absolutely right. Refinance your mortgage. Go get a home equity loan or a home equity line of credit or do a cash-out refi in order to come up with the $25,000 to pay for the renovation. Okay. The interest rate's very low. You'll be able to amortize it over as much as a 30-year period of time, and it'll prove to be much more cost-effective over the long run. Besides, the purpose of the equity in your house is to help maintain the value of the house. A bathroom renovation theoretically should increase the value of the house. So pulling cash out of the equity of the house to put it back into the equity of the house yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's very different from putting the money into the stock market or, you know, blowing it on a vacation. Okay. Then the other option, I think I know the answer to this one, would be borrowing against like a 401k. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. Uh, although you're able to do that, your 401k is like your IRA. It's there for your retirement. As soon as you pull money out of that account to spend it on non-retirement needs, you're hurting your future retirement security. So, no, I would encourage you not to borrow against your 401k. Okay. And then uh, I'm not sure if you're the right person to ask this, but they're going to reassess my house when I add the bathroom. Are they allowed to reassess it at current market value or just the bathroom? They will assess the entire house. They're not going to assess a room in the house. And so they would say that, you know, I paid 360 but it's now worth... 750 so I'm now going to be paying plus the bathroom, let's say 800 I'm going to be paying property taxes on the 800000 Yeah, but that's not how assessments work. An assessment is not an appraisal. Uh, when you are looking to sell your house, the house will get appraised, and the appraiser will walk through the house looking at all of the elements in it. How old is the bathroom? How old is the kitchen? And if it's been recently renovated, they will increase the value of the house accordingly. But the assessor isn't going to do that. The assessor is going to look at the neighborhood. They're going to look at the broad marketplace. They're not going to look at the bathroom on the second floor of your house. So the assessment is not going to be reflective of the improvement. All right. Well, that covers it. Thank you very much. Mark, I appreciate your phone call very much. Thank you. That was Mark in La Mirada, California, here on The Rick Edelman Show. 888-PLAN-RICK is the number he dialed. You can, too. You can also check us out online at rickedelman.com. Time now for a visit from my wife, Jean Edelman, co-founder here at Edelman Financial Engines, author on her own right of The Other Side of Money, and an expert in macrobiotic cooking, a degree in consumer economics. Jean. Hello. Good to be with you this week. It's starting to feel a little cooler, and many of us are now beginning our change of season. So I wanted to talk about season a little bit today. Seasons and nature, it's all about change. And I feel like if we can connect to nature a bit more than we do, we can adapt to change a little bit better because nature is always changing. And as I shared, as we're about to step into this cooler weather, some of us call it late summer, early fall, nature begins to shift. The plants and trees bring all their energy in. And then we start to see the leaves and the flowers begin to change and drop. It's also a time, if you're going to our 
farmer's markets that you're going to start seeing a change in the food that's available because it is time to change our food. We want to stop the cold ice cream and the cold iced drinks, and we want to shift to teas, warm tea, warm cider, warm broth, more soups. We are going to eat more root vegetables and beautiful sweet squash. Maybe in the morning we feel like some warm oatmeal with some toasted walnuts. And so as the season changes, our food changes, and we change. The air is cooler, and this is also a time that we want to watch our health. With the cooler air, we want to keep our head and our neck and our lower back nice and warm and covered. If these three spots on our body get drafty and cold, it's likely that we might catch a little something. So we want to beware of staying nice and warm. And so I just want us all to think about the season. And my word of the week is season. So the S is to see, to see nature, to observe it, and to flow with it. The E is to eat, eat differently, shift from cold to warm. The A is to adjust. We adjust our clothes. We wear some more layers. We bring out our sweaters and jackets. Maybe there's some other things we can adjust in our life. S is to simplify. It's a wonderful time. It's cooler. We can breathe a little easier. Movement is more enjoyable. And so maybe going through our closets and drawers and releasing that what doesn't give us joy to share with others. O is to remain open-minded and open-hearted. And N is to nourish. Nourish ourselves with good food, self-care. Nurture ourselves. Take care of ourselves. Be in our environment. Enjoy the changes that are coming. We need to flow. We need to be like the willow tree that just blows in the wind and is flexible and adjustable and just there enjoying these wonderful, wonderful seasonal changes. And so I wish you all a wonderful, beautiful week. Just be outside. Enjoy the cooler weather. Have fun adapting and finding your new routines. Have a beautiful week, everyone. Thank you. That was Gene Edelman here on The Rick Edelman Show. Triple Eight Plan Rick. As always, thanks for joining us on the program today. Remember, our full podcast has more topics and stories, including the latest on the fight against Alzheimer's. And, of course, more of your phone calls. Listen to this week's podcast at rickedelman.com. See you next week.